Let us turn in the Psalms to number 92, uh, page 600, if you're using the Bible provided by the church. Psalm 92. It is a good to praise the Lord and to make music to your name, O Most High, to proclaim your love in the morning. And your faithfulness at night to the music of the ten-stringed lyre and the melody of the harp. For you make me glad by your deeds, O Lord. I sing for joy at the work of your hands. How great are your works, O Lord. How profound your thoughts. The senseless man does not know. Fools do not understand. Though the wicked spring up like grass and all evildoers flourish, they will be forever destroyed. But you, O Lord, are exalted forever. For surely your enemies, O Lord, Surely your enemies will perish. All evildoers will be scattered. You have exalted my horn like that of a wild ox. Fine oils have been poured upon me. My eyes have seen the defeat of my adversaries. My ears have heard the rout of my wicked foes. The righteous will flourish like a palm tree. They will grow like a cedar of Lebanon. Planted in the house of the Lord, they will flourish in the courts of our God. They will still bear fruit in old age. They will stay fresh and green. Proclaiming, the Lord is upright. He is my rock, and there is no wickedness in him. Amen. All of us know we are to keep the Sabbath day or the Lord's day holy. But what does that involve? Too often for Christians, keeping the Sabbath holy consists of a list of don'ts. Children don't do schoolwork on the Sabbath. Children don't go to birthday parties. Don't play sport on the Lord's Day. As adults, we don't go to our daily employment unless it is a work of mercy or necessity. Christian families don't shop and don't uh, make TV the centre of their day either. But the Sabbath must be about more than the negative. Indeed, the Sabbath should be distinctively positive. 
and spiritually enriching. God intends it to be the best day of our week. Yes, there is a need for don'ts on the Sabbath to make way for the do's of the Sabbath. Just as you don't clutter your garage if you want to park your car in it. We come this morning to Psalm 92. And it has the heading, as we find it on page 600 in the Church Bible, For the Sabbath Day. This psalm, of course, is written in the Old Testament. And it refers, in that context, to the seventh day of the week. The day which was set apart for rest by God at the end of the week of creation, when he'd finished making all things spread out over six days. And the Sabbath in the Old Testament marks and celebrates a finished creation. God rested from his work and he observed what he had made. And he saw that all that he had made was good. We come to this psalm this morning as New Testament Christians. That doesn't mean that the Sabbath day is now done away with. As some Christians and churches to teach and believe today. No, we come to this psalm in the light of Christ's finished work. And we recognise that the seventh day of the week has now become the first day of the week. While the day has changed, the purpose has not changed. And now we have an added reason for keeping the Sabbath day. Not only to mark a finished creation in terms of the world, but also a finished salvation in terms of the work of Jesus. And so here is a psalm that will help us instate the positive and the enriching into our Sabbaths. And perhaps that's what some of us need to do. Because in Northern Ireland for too long the Sabbath has been about what you don't do. Instead of as Christians and from the word of God it should be about what we do do. There's four things we want to note then this morning that come out of this psalm that should be part of our Sabbath. Part of our Christian Sabbath. First of all, the Lord's works, verses 1 to 5. Then secondly, verses 6 to 9, the Lord's enemies. Thirdly, verses 10 to 11, the Lord's deliverance. And finally, verses 12 to 15, the Lord's house. First of all, the Lord's works are to be at the heart of of your Sabbath and mine. The psalm begins by reminding us of a very simple truth, 
but we can easily neglect it. It is good to praise the Lord and to make music to your name most high. I wonder what things you specifically asked the Lord for in this past week. What prayers did he answer? Did you take time to give thanks to the Lord? To acknowledge his answers to your prayers. It is good. It is necessary. It is right. Uh, It is important to praise the Lord and to make music to your name most high. The worship service in the Jewish temple had a huge element of praise to it. We sign there from Psalm 122. The phrase there was that praise was commanded and thanksgiving was commanded as part of Old Testament Jewish worship. And we will need to note what it was that was at the centre of their praise. Their praise was not centred on themselves. It wasn't centred on the things they did in the past week. Their praise focused on the works of God. Look at verse 4. For you make me glad by your deeds, O Lord. How great are your works, O Lord. Here's a people meeting for worship. And they are absorbed with the works of the Lord. And unless a church, and unless individuals are absorbed with the works of the Lord, it's not worship. Whatever it is, it's not worship. On the Sabbath, these old covenant believers worship God for his works. Now, what works um, are they likely to have had in mind? The psalmist doesn't spell it out. But there was, of course, his work of creation. That work by which he made all things in six days. They, of course, had very little understanding in that day of the physical world compared to you and me today. Yes, they could look and they could see the sun. They could see the moon. They could see the stars. But they didn't have telescopes. They didn't know there were galaxies. And there was a vast, vast cosmos. And yet... They were a people who could see the hand of God in creation and they worshipped him for that. And how much more ought we to? With all the space exploration that we are privileged to have at the beginning of the 21st century. How much greater, how much more marvellous is our insight and our understanding Of the work of God in creation. They knew the work of God in providence. And how he provided for them day by day. 
and how he led them. They could look back uh, to the Exodus. They could look back to Abraham. They could look back to Noah. They could look back in their own lives and see the providence of God, how he provided for them. And again, that was a matter of praise when they came together in worship on the Lord's Day. And then, of course, the greatest work of God, and it's the heart of the Old Testament. It's not his creation. It's not his providence. It's his salvation. That this God had taken the Jews, this people that were a nobody, no people, very small, very insignificant, and he had made them his people. He had saved them out of their bondage, out of their sins. He had given them uh, sacrifices which pointed them uh, to his salvation in the one who would come and crush the head of the serpent. And you and I, how much more we have of God's providence. We have got history uh, of um, 2,000 years since the coming of Christ. Not to mention the history before that. And to see God's dealings and his providence for his people. And how much more you and I know of God's salvation. The Christ has now come. The shadow is the reality. The Lamb is now the Lamb of God. Not an animal. And that has to be offered again and again. But one who has offered his blood and shed it once for all. The Lord's works. And you see as they think of the Lord's works. It fills their minds with thoughts of his greatness. And his majesty and his dominion. It caused them to proclaim his goodness. Look at verse 2. They proclaim your loving kindness. Literally it is your covenant love. Your chesed in the morning and your faithfulness at night. They were able to say every Sabbath day of the week that had passed. Every day that I woke up, I experienced the covenant love of my God. Every day when it came to an end, I was able to look back and see the faithfulness of my God. And is not that not what we should be able to do also on our Sabbath, the first day of the week? We look back uh, to um, the week that has passed and we say, the Lord has shown me his loving kindness and his faithfulness. The Lord's works. You see, the problem today, I believe, is this. That most people seek their satisfaction not in the Lord's works, but in their own works. In their own works. What they do, what they achieve. And there's never satisfaction to be found in our own works. Because our own works are imperfect. And our own works are temporary. 
And our own works are unsure and uncertain. What we build today may be destroyed tomorrow. What we do today we may leave behind tomorrow. Or we, or we will leave behind when we die. You see we're made. Man is made for so much more than his paltry, weak, pathetic works. We're made to focus on the works of God. And when a people focus on the works of God, we are transported beyond ourselves to his greatness and his goodness and his grace and his majesty. So what do you think about on the Lord's Day? Do you think about your own works? Or are we thinking about the Lord's works? Let's notice then, secondly, the Lord's enemies. We're coming now to verses 6 to 9, the Lord's enemies. And this section focuses now on those who simply live life on the horizontal plane. And their admiration and their thoughts never rise above their own paltry works. They have no room for God. They have no need for God. And they would uh, tell us they have no thought of God. And if you were to speak to them about God's work of creation, they dismiss that with evolution. And when you talk to them about God's work of providence, they dismiss that as the luck of the draw. And when you speak to them about God's work of salvation, they dismiss that as a fairy tale that weak-minded people who can't cope with life need to believe. They dismiss the works of God. And so the psalmist describes such a person, verse 6, the senseless man. The senseless man. This man is acts like a brute beast. There's no understanding. And a lack of understanding does not know. Fools do not understand. The person who never gets beyond their own works and who dismisses the works of God outright or out of hand is a fool. A fool. They may have brilliant minds. They may be able to achieve all kinds of things in the world of men. But in the sight of God, they're wed and they're found wanting. Brutish. Senseless. senseless fools. Because they're rejecting what is clearly to be known and to be seen and understood. But the psalmist tells us they're more than fools. 
You see, if they were men, simply fools, we could just let them go in their way and say they're entitled to their opinion. But they're also wicked. They're wicked. Verse 7. Look at how the psalmist describes them. The wicked spring up like grass and flourish. He's referring to the same group. Those who deny God and deny his works, decry his works and dismiss his works. Not just senseless. They're not just foolish. But they're wicked. Wicked. Robbing God of his glory and his greatness. Robbing and denying God of their worship and their service. And the psalmist says, the wicked, they're like the grass. And what is he saying here? Well, he's saying um, something about how the wicked flourish. Because grass in that context where there was uh, drought and arid conditions and you got a shower of rain and suddenly everywhere was covered with shoots of grass. And so it grows quickly in the right conditions and grass seeds and grass spreads. You and I find grass in some unusual places, don't we? The spoutings in your house. Grass will grow practically anywhere. It may not grow very well, but it will spring up anywhere and everywhere. And the psalmist is saying that this mindset, which uh, denies God and his works, it's springing up like grass. And those rejecting God are flourishing everywhere in our society today. In our schools, in parliament, in the media, even in the professing church. The kind of moral decisions and the kind of doctrines that are being uh, believed and accepted in parts of the church. They're wicked. The psalmist describes them, verse 9, these people who are brutish and foolish and wicked as your enemies, O Lord. That's hardly surprising, is it? That's a given, isn't it? But have we ever thought about this? That they're also our enemies. They're also our enemies. And they're enemies of Christ's church. Everyone who is an enemy of God is an enemy of his church. And we need to realize that what the wicked take from God, they will seek to take from his people. What the wicked take from God or deny God, they will seek to take from his church. 
And we shouldn't be surprised if at some point in the future the wicked try to take the Bible from the church. If they try to take Christ from the church. And the Bible will become a banned book. And Christ will become a banned person. And we mustn't be surprised if they try to take morals from the church. Or if they try to take from us as Christians in the church the freedom to live out our faith in the world. Because if you deny God, you will deny his people. Now is God's cause hopeless? Far from it. Because there's something else that's true of grass. And what's that? It withers. It withers. Especially in the hot, arid conditions. Yes, it springs up quickly. And it looks fine. And it has its hour. But then it withers. Verse 7. They will be forever destroyed. They will be forever destroyed. For surely your enemies, verse 9, your enemies will perish. The Lord's enemies. We've seen their characteristics. We've seen how they operate. But we see also here that they um, will be destroyed. They will disappear. Look at verse 8. But you, O Lord, are exalted forever. Paul in the New Testament, possibly with this verse in mind, says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 25, For he must reign, that's Christ, until he's put all his enemies under his feet. The Lord's enemies, yes, they're powerful, they're flourishing, but they're also doomed to destruction. Living in a world of wickedness, whether it is the Muslim trust and the streets of Woolwich, or whether it is the politician in the House of Commons, or the churchman in Edinburgh, we need to remember on the Sabbath day, but you, O Lord Jesus, are exalted forever. And we need that framework. We need to come into the Lord's house and we need to have the events that are happening in the world around us, the world of politics, and the, happening in the nations, happening in the church. We need to have them interpreted and explained and put in perspective in the light of God's word on his day. And so on the Sabbath day, we remember not only the Lord's works with delight, but we also we remember the Lord's enemies, that they will be destroyed forever. But then thirdly, let's notice the Lord's deliverance. We're coming now to verses 10 and 11. The Lord's deliverance. 
The psalmist moves now from the grand scale, the big plane, the big picture, down now into the microcosm of his own life, his own personal experience. Look at what he says in verse 10. You have exalted my horn like that of a wild ox. Fine oils have been poured on me. My eyes have seen the defeat of my adversaries. My ears have heard the rout of my wicked foes. Notice the word my now. My horn. My eyes. My ears. My foes. We don't know the background to this psalm. So we can't identify the precise Old Testament event the psalmist has in mind. But the point is nonetheless clear. You have exalted my horn. You have delivered me. The writer has experienced, has personally experienced rather, of the Lord's deliverance. A fierce and powerful enemy has gathered against him, intent on his destruction, but he has been defeated, this enemy, I, the psalmist Lord. We can surely identify the New Testament event that this describes. Our Saviour, in his earthly life, in his ministry, the scribes and the Pharisees, are they not those who watched him intently? Uh, the word means literally with insidious eyes, eyes of accusation. They watched his movements closely. They sought an opportunity to destroy him on many occasions. And eventually they found an ally. In Judas Iscariot. But it was a shallow victory wasn't it? It was a hollow victory. Because on the third day. God exalted. The horn of Jesus. He raised him. From the dead. On the first day. Of the week. And in the meantime, Jesus had defeated all his enemies by the very act of dying. Defeated sin and Satan and death. And you see, this is our deliverance. This is what you have. This is what I have. This is what we have. In Jesus Christ, our horn, our horn, my horn, you've exalted my horn, so that we will also triumph over sin and death and Satan and every other enemy, every human enemy, every cosmic power. That Paul talks about in Ephesians 6. That opposes us. 
we have the Lord's deliverance. And you see, whatever happens in your life and mine, the other six days, whatever disappointments, whatever setbacks, whatever sufferings we face for Christ, we should be reminded each Sabbath that in Christ I have the Lord's deliverance. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us and gave himself for us. What shall separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus? And I don't know about you, but I know that I for myself, I need to have that perspective set before me each Sabbath day. The Lord's deliverance of me, of you. But then let's notice fourthly and finally this morning, the Lord's house. The Lord's house, verses 12 to 15. In the Old Testament, there was no greater privilege for the believer than going to the temple in Jerusalem. That's why we sang Psalm 122 at the beginning of our service. It was the house of God. The place where the glory of God dwelt. It was the place where God met with his people. It was the place where God ministered to his people as they worshipped him under the oversight of the high priest. And every male Jew made sure that he was there at least three times a year. And then for the rest of the year they met in local synagogues which pointed to Jerusalem. So that every time they met in their local community, while their feet might have been in Capernaum uh, or Galilee or wherever, their hearts were in Jerusalem and their minds were in Jerusalem. And verse 13 sums up how the, old believe, how the Old Testament believer thought of himself planted in the house of the Lord. They will flourish in the courts of our God. That's how they saw their lives. Yes, we have been delivered. But now changing the metaphor, we have been planted. Planted. God plants those whom he saves in his house. How wonderful it is that we're not left as solitary Christians. I wouldn't make it to heaven if I was left to be a solitary Christian. We need one another. And so God in his wisdom has planted us in the house of the Lord. And, there's, uh, and in this house we flourish 
And it's the same word as we had earlier of the grass flourishing. But planted in the house of God. We're not like grass. Look at what we're like. Cedar trees. And like the palm tree. Trees that are flourishing. Strong. Becoming stable. Able to stand in the midst of the wind. Roots going down deep. So that no matter what comes in life, there's nourishment and there's strength there. And you see, that's what we get only in the church of Christ. That's the only place we will get it. There's the same emphasis in Acts chapter 2. Those whom Christ saved, what did he do? He added, he planted in the church of the New Testament. And what did they do? There they gave themselves to the apostles' doctrine, to prayer, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, to the means of grace, so that they grew up and they became strong and mature and stable. You see, planted and flourishing. And you will not flourish in your Christian life unless you are planted in the house of the Lord. And that means some very simple things for you and me. The church is to be at the heart of our Sabbath. Everything else you do, that you believe you should do and can do on the Sabbath, is secondary to being in church. So what time will I get up at? I don't have to go to work, so I don't need to be up as early. Well, that's fine. But make sure you're up in good time to be at church. What shall we have for dinner? Well, what will allow us to be at church? I could never quite understand the mindset that had to have somebody at home uh, to make the dinner on the Sabbath day. That it had to be such a special that it replaced worship. It's not the heart. Um, The Sunday lunch is not what defines our day. The Sabbath day. It's being here that defines our day. Why this emphasis on the church? Because it's how we become stable and strong. And it's what will also keep us green. Keep us fresh. Into old age. Keep us bearing fruit in old age. The people who are most beautiful, the Christians that are most beautiful at old age, are Christians who've been planted in the house of God and have made the house of God the central activity on the day of God. 
And if you and I want to be like them, we've got to be planted. And sometimes I think about the generation that's coming up, or my own generation down, and I dread to think how and what those people will be like in their old age because they're not being planted now in the house of the Lord. And they're not being nourished. And they're not flourishing in the house of God. And you see, at the end of our lives, there'll be many challenges if we reach old age. And we want to be able to say, don't we, with the psalmist, the Lord is upright. He is my rock. And there is no unrighteousness in him. We want to be able to say that at the end of our lives. We want to be able to say that with confidence. That has got to be our testimony. And if we are planted in the house of the Lord. And flourish throughout our lives in the church. Then it will be our testimony. Because every Lord's day this God. Will have poured his grace in Christ. Into you and into me. And he'll have built strength into us. And made us live for him, enabled us to live for him all our lives. So let's not talk on the Sabbath about the Sabbath in terms of the don'ts. Let's talk about in terms of the do's. We think about the Lord's works. Remember the Lord's enemies. Remember the Lord's deliverance. And we remember the Lord's house. And by doing that, we will make the Sabbath a delight. Amen. Let's bow our heads. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this day. The day that you have made. The day that you have given to us. The day that celebrates our finished salvation, the day that celebrates the um, early creation and the initial creation of the heavens and the earth. Lord God, we thank you for all that this day means to us by your grace, for all the blessings you have brought into our lives through it over the years. We pray, Lord God, that you would help us to not allow the world to influence our Sabbath, but to allow your word to influence our Sabbath. Cause us, O Lord, to be a people who delight in your works, who delight, O Lord, uh, in what you are doing in the world. Help us, O Lord, on your day to remember that our enemies are your enemies and that they are defeated. Help us, Lord God, on your day to rejoice in your deliverance of us in Christ and help us each Lord's day to grow in grace as we gather together in this place. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.